Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in truth, in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are in the Gospel of John and finally moved on from John chapter 3. But if you can recall, John chapter 3 was a conversation with a man, Nicodemus. And John chapter 4 is a conversation with a woman named, uh, unnamed. And the contrasts between these two people are so significant. First of all, Nicodemus, he was a Jew. This woman is a Samaritan, and you'll see why that is so significant. Jesus approaches this Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is coming at night 
And Jesus is encountering this woman in the heat of the day at noon. Nicodemus is a respected member of the religious elite. And this woman is a person of disrepute. Despite their differences, there's one key similarity. It's one that impacts each one of us, and it's this. They are both dying of thirst. And Jesus comes to quench both of their thirsts with what he describes as the wellspring of eternal life. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to look at this chapter of the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to look at it as a whole, and then... Next week and the following, the following after that, we'll look at it more in its individual parts. But what I'd like to do is to highlight a few ways in which this woman's thirst is being addressed by Jesus and how Jesus encounters not only this woman, but actually all of us. So the four ways are he deals with her ignorance, the issue of inclusivity, individuality, and intentionality. What I'd like to do is look at these words and show, hopefully show you how Jesus very much ultimately is the one who quenches the thirst of not only this woman, but each one of us. So first, we'll look at ignorance. And I'd like to subtitle this by saying, you don't really know you are dying of thirst. And that we see in verses 6 through 15, but I'm going to focus on a couple of verses within that section. In verses 7 through 8, this is what's recorded. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. These verses are incredibly ordinary. I mean, they're basically describing this woman getting water. And there's Jesus' disciples going to buy food. Seems like no big deal. Something that is very plain and typical. Within John 4, there's a well. And Jesus, at the sixth hour, which is about noon, is sitting at this well. And this woman comes up to draw water. Again, the ordinariness of life. It's how someone survives. You need water. There's nothing more simple than this. And yet, The one thing is, as she's getting this water, what she fails to realize is that even if she takes of this water, she actually is dying internally, spiritually speaking, and she's ignorant of it. I like survival shows, and for those of you who've been with me for a while, you might know this. Um, It it all started with a guy by the name of Bear Grylls, and some of you know him. He's the British Special Forces uh, soldier who teaches survival skills. And one of the earliest episodes that he did was he's in a desert and he's dying of thirst. And so I won't say exactly how it does it, but he recycles his own fluids to, uh, you know, to survive. But one of the things that he notes in it is that he says, if you are thirsty in that type of environment, you're already dehydrated. You just don't know it. And if you don't get water soon enough, you could die. And there are many people who have died in that type of context, especially in the heat of a desert. That's the challenge of this dehydration that is experienced is that 
you often don't know you're dehydrated and only your desire, your thirsting for water reveals in some sense something's wrong. Spiritually speaking, this is absolutely the case. For this woman, she's just going about her business. She's living life like all of us. The reality is that she's dying of thirst, spiritually speaking, literally dying. And Jesus has come to encounter her. Jesus says to this woman in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So keep this in mind is that this woman is taking care of her family. She's going about running her errands, doing what she needs to do to survive. She does the ordinary, but she's ignorant of her condition. And after all, the family will get the water and she's doing the hard labor. Physical needs are being cared for. She will survive another day. But even as she's surviving, she's dying. And this water that she's drawing from, eventually it will run dry. It will not sustain a dead body. So it is the way of life for all people in our world to deem that which is current and right now to be so critical and important. But eventually you find that that isn't always the case. I was having a conversation with someone this past week and this person's same age as me and we were talking about raising our kids when they were two and four and six and whatever ages, the, the younger years. And you know, in, in that stage of life, the things that were so important, uh, maybe you know, shuttling your kids and some of you are doing this, you're shuttling your kids everywhere to this activity, this sport, you're on your kids about grades, or you're thinking about all sorts of things like uh, that just seem so important at the time. But are they really? Step forward 20 years, and you begin to think, you know, that wasn't that important. That perspective is so important. The, the reality that the accolades that we long for at work, at home, in our communities, we get so fixated on such things. For those of you who are Warriors fans, if you watch the first two games, maybe you're really angry, frustrated. I mean, that's, that's the craziness. That's why they're called, fans are called fanatics, right? We actually are fanatical, crazy. But it's really a game. It is. But it matters so much for some reason. You buy a new car, you have a young child, you put a car seat in, and as you're driving along, the road is a little windy, they feel a little nauseous, and then suddenly they, you see the green on their face and you say, oh no, but it's too late. They vomit all over the back seat. Why does that bother us so much? Why does it bother us when our spouse drives a little too closely to the garage and scrapes the side of your brand new car? Anyone ever do that? Anyone's spouse ever do that? Okay, I'm not trying to promote fights here. But that matters in the moment. But what about 20 years later? Does that matter? That's the reality of living for the moment is that the things that are so critical and important to you right now, even as you're listening to my voice, something is 
sort of prompting your brain to say, I need to, I'm worried about this, I'm thinking about this, but 20 years from today will matter nothing. Solomon addresses this, I quoted him last week, do it again, a different part of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11, this is what he says. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my, my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So much of our mental headspace is filled with all sorts of worries and anxieties that these two shall pass, and it will pass eventually. My friends, we are like the woman at the well. When we're busy with life, in the moment, everything matters critically. But in that moment also, apart from Christ, we are dying of thirst. The fullness without Jesus is the pleasure that Solomon is speaking from in Ecclesiastes 2, that it is a vanity and a chasing after the wind. And eventually, no matter how delectable or how delightful or enjoyable something is, give it some time, and it could actually come to disgust you. There was a, a buffet in the Bay Area that I know many of us frequented. It was called Todai. We used to call it to die for. Remember that buffet? Some of you are new, do not remember this. And some of you are younger, do not remember this. But I remember going there. And when you're hungry, buffets are, it's paradise. I mean, it really is. Your eyes light up. You see sushi, all different kinds. And you say, just eat. And I remember literally thinking I had sinned when I'd been there. I'm not just saying that. I literally have sinned, and I had to repent over it. But the time that I went, I was so full. I mean, the food was literally just about out. And I'm sitting there in the back with my friend, sitting like just over bloated. And suddenly that food that I was looking at as the greatest thing in the world became disgusting. Ever experienced that? Something that you love so much in the moment, suddenly only two hours later becomes something you dread and you hate. That's what Jesus is showing us here, that we're ignorant of the idea that all that this world has for us, they might feel wondrous in the moment, but after a while, it's nothing but horrors. That's the reality of drugs, of gambling, shopping, work. No matter what it is, eventually you get too much of it and you will find it to really weary and burden your soul. There are friendships, reputations, careers, college choices, vacations, homes, possessions, romantic love and so many other things that we can fill our hearts with, at the very beginning of it, it always feels so wonderful until it doesn't. Eventually, you will find that they cannot quench your thirst, and you will be dying of thirst, even though you have so much. 
This is what we all have and experience. It is truly the ignorance of our hearts and of this woman's heart. She just didn't realize that she was dying of thirst. I hope you see that you as well have experienced this. Second, we look at the inclusivity of what this woman represents. That is to say that all are dying of thirst. Now I'm going to look at verses 7 through 9 and 16 through 18. It really is some of the most shocking verses in this encounter. Verses 7 through 9, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then also verses 16 through 18, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. There are many reasons why Jesus should not be having this conversation with this woman. I want to give you a few. First, ethnicity. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jews saw Samaritans as not only ethnic half-breeds, but they had a distorted view of Judaism. And so there was such a conflict, especially Jews towards Samaritans. They saw them as truly lower. If you know anything about the Hutus and the Tutsis during the war in Rwanda, there was such hatred towards one another. That's an ethnic hatred, tribal hatred. But imagine if both groups were Muslim. And so if you know anything about Islam, the Shia and the Shiites, they really, uh, the Shia and the Sunni, they really hate each other. And so there's a religious hatred and there's an ethnic hatred. That's sort of the essence of what's taking place between a Jew and a Samaritan in this day. There was really this double hatred. And so the two never encountered one another. Secondly, there's this gender challenge, opposition. Jewish rabbi men did not converse with women, especially in public, private and public places. They just didn't do it. It would create rumor, controversy, gossip. So that's why in verse 27, this is what John records, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. The word marveled is another way to translate this word is astonished or disturbed, or shall I say, astonishingly disturbed. They were shocked that Jesus would be talking to a woman like this. And so really bothered them that he was doing this. Thirdly, there's a religious issue because Jews did not share utensils with non-Jews. And the reason for that is that if they did that, it would disqualify them from temple worship. They would become unclean. And so for Jesus to say, give me a drink, it would obviously be with the woman's cup since he didn't have a cup. And that's something you just didn't see any Jew doing, let alone a rabbi, a teacher. Of course, the greatest impediment of their coming together is morality. This is a woman with a reputation. There's a reason why she's going in midday, possibly in 100 degree heat, 
to go when no one went to draw water. And drawing water, for those of us who have been in Africa in some of the smaller villages, you see these women carrying huge buckets of water. I mean, I, I've done that before where this woman, an African woman, would be carrying water and you pick up their water. I couldn't do it. I mean, they're walking like miles with it. and I could barely pick it up without splashing it all over the place. You didn't do that in the heat of the day. It, it doesn't make sense. You would dehydrate. You could pass out. So they would go either in the morning when it's cool or towards sunset when it was cool. But you don't go in the middle. The only time you went in the middle is if you had something to hide, if you didn't want to see people. And for this woman, there's a reason why she didn't want to see people. She was married five times. Now, even in our day, if you meet someone married five times, there is an automatic you know, assumption, there's uh, impressions. In Jesus' day, there was barely any divorce. So for someone to be divorced once is one thing, twice, three times, five times, and then Jesus says, the person you're living with is not your husband. And you can imagine what, if you are Jesus, you're a man, you're meeting at this well in the middle of the day with this woman, don't you think he would be a little bit cautious? And You might say, doesn't he have any discernment? Because if he's there, then people are going to think maybe Jesus is going to be husband number six or seven. Why would he put himself into that type of situation? So by Jesus going there, there's a very specific purpose for his meeting of this woman. It was to highlight the openness of the gospel, its inclusivity to all, regardless of ethnicity, gender, religion, and yes, even morality. In other words, you can be the most immoral person ever and yet still know Christ. I remember when Ted Bundy, who was a mass murderer, he was being interviewed by James Dobson, and James Dobson was sharing the gospel with him, and he said, I'm, I believe. I, I believe in Jesus. This is a guy who's killed multiple people. He's, he's someone you would say is evil. If you see Ted Bundy in heaven, what would you think? Wouldn't you think, you don't deserve to be here? How, how dare Jesus do that? That's sort of our framework is we think that there's a class of people. Some people deserve heaven and some people don't. Some people ethnically belong and some people don't. Some people are nice and kind and gentle and some people are mean-spirited. Some people have raised their fists to God. And this is a, a note that I've been saying to so many of you is that there are some people who are going to be with the Lord eternally, with us, who for their whole life have been incredibly foul and resistant to Christ. But in their last moment, because God's a gracious God, they truly humble themselves and turn to Christ. That person is one of the reasons why Jesus is visiting this woman at the well. To say that the gospel and its message in God's word it is a dangerous message. Do you know that the Bible is one of the most banned books throughout world history? There's a reason why that totalitarian regimes uh, from fascist, communistic, they will often take the Bible and ban it because the Bible, unlike Marx, 
pitting bourgeois against the proletariat. It's, it's the one book that actually believes in a true equality, an equality of sinfulness and a need for Christ. And it doesn't matter where they've come from, what they've done, what they look like, how wealthy they are, how much education they have, what, you know, what ethnicity you are, what part of the uh, railroad tracks you live on. It doesn't matter. It's, are you a sinner? Yes. And he will come to you. There's a movement today in our society. It's called DEI. And I think many of you know this. You see this all throughout. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're hearing it in your companies, in schools. But I tell you that that's an absolute lie. You know why? Because it is the gospel that is truly DEI. The gospel is the truest, diverse, equitable, and inclusive news that we have. Because the gospel says that everyone can turn to Christ. Anyone. The gospel says that we are all sinners, but God equally saves, not on the basis of anything we've done, but just because he's a merciful God. And then it's inclusive of all. There's even to the ends of the earth, even if you, whatever language you speak, whatever color you are, whatever uh, academic status you have, social status, it is inclusive. Truly, the gospel is the truest source of DEI. I want you to know that. You know, we Christians, we are not miserable, you know, glum, gloomy haters. We love people. We want everyone to turn to Christ. And there is nothing that is, going, is, is an obstacle too great that Christ cannot overcome with his grace and love. And John 4 shows us this to be true. I think that says a lot about the gospel of grace. Third, this story speaks of individuality. That is to say that you, as an individual, we are all dying of thirst. Verse 7 and 29. In verse 7 it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And then verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So verse 29 is the woman going to her village and telling everybody about what Jesus has done. Now here's the thing. Jesus could have gone directly to the Samaritan village and had a big crusade, a big rally, and preached and everyone be saved. Uh, He could have done that. But he goes to this woman specifically to meet her at the well as an individual. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's something that speaks to the reality that Jesus encounters us as an individual, not just as a part of the body. He does do that as part of the body, but certainly he calls each one of us to be saved. That's uniquely different than the Catholic Church, which holds to more of a holistic view without an individuality of the gospel going forth. Martin Luther fought on the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that anyone, anyone as an individual can turn to Christ. And if you look at the story, it's, it's just amazing that Jesus would very specifically go to a person, an individual, not just simply as a society or a nation, which he could have done, This is 
the God of the universe who surely has better things to do, and yet he speaks to you as a person. He cares about you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your needs. He knows your thoughts. He knows your hurts and your pains and your struggles. When you actually pray to him, he actually cares. You're not just some random voice amongst multitudes. You matter to him as an individual person. The thing is, Jesus doesn't need a drink from this woman. Maybe he did, but did it really matter that much to him? No. Um, But what he wanted to do instead was to give her a priceless gift, living water from the wellspring of life that never runs dry. He wanted to bless her immeasurably. But there was something that he was calling her to give. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't water per se. It was her heart to trust him, to believe in him. And I do think that that's what Jesus is asking of each one of you. He's asking for something. And it's not because he needs it. It's because he wants your heart. And he knows what is deeply in your heart your reputation. He wants you to give up your reputation. He wants you to give up your prosperity. He wants you to give up your children, your future marriage, your health. He wants you to give up your retirement, all the plans that you've made up for. He wants you to give up your career, your romantic interests, your doubts, your intellect. He's saying, give me this. Would you give it to me? And Trust me, he's not trying to build his reputation off of yours or needs your career or your money or your house or your possession or your children, whatever it might be. But what he does want is he knows that that is what's deeply satisfying to you. You think it is. And so he's saying, trust me with it. And trust me with it. There's no bank, as we all know, that can protect your resources. There's nothing that can secure your life. He's saying, trust me with it. And he's speaking to you as an individual right now. So if you hear my words, I don't want you to hear it as, oh, he's preaching to the church. No, it's to you as an individual. And Jesus knows that in our hearts, we have this one thing that says, I cannot give this up, Lord. I don't want to give it to you. He's saying, give it to me. Give me a drink. Give me this. And Jesus responds in the same way as he does to the woman, to us. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you realize that Jesus will not let you down? He will not, his goal is not to make your life miserable and empty and painful, filled with suffering. He's saying, give me this, that which you treasure the most, and I promise you, I promise you, this is the God of the universe saying this, I promise you, I will take care of you. I will bless you to overflowing. I will, you will be with me forever. Living water that will never run dry. You will never be disgusted by what I give to you. In this world, everything else, it will let you down, no matter how close they are, family, friends, but Jesus will never let you down. He's saying, if you knew the gift of God 
And if you really knew who was saying it to you, if you really understood, this is who God is. And he's saying to you, give me this, whatever that is. You would give it if you really believed it because you know you will never be thirsty again. That's the individuality. Jesus is speaking to you as a person. Lastly is that intentionality. He desires to quench your thirst. And I want you to look at verse four because verse four is a very simple verse. You might not see too much there, but there's actually a lot that's being said in verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. The, the phrase, he had to pass, here's the challenge with verse four, is that he didn't have to pass through Samaria. There were different ways to get to Samaria besides the road that he was taking uh, to get to where he needed to go. He didn't have to pass through Samaria, but he chose to pass through Samaria. And he chose to pass through Samaria because he had to pass to meet this woman. It's very intentional, Jesus going and to Samaria to meet this woman. You know, and we're not talking about the Roman emperor or the leading Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of the day, the religious leader of the day. He had to pass through Samaria to meet an insignificant woman who was amoral, immoral and someone who no one paid heed to at all, but yet for the God of the universe, he had to do this because he wanted to meet her. I think of Jesus preaching and this Zacchaeus, you know, the song, the wee little man, the wee little man was he. He climbed up a sycamore tree and Jesus said, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. And he just sees the individual. He has to do this. When he met you, for those of you who know Christ, I hope you see it as Jesus' intention to meet you where you are. No matter how far you are, were away, no matter how hardened of heart, no matter how ignorant of who he was, he came, he saw you, he did everything to make sure that he met you. And if you do not know Christ, this is our God. This is the God who does want to meet you. And you need to open your heart to him. Jesus detours to make sure that he meets her there. Why? To quench her thirst as a unique individual person. And my friends, this is our story. If you came to know Jesus, it is not because you reached out to him. Look at this woman. There is no way this woman turns to Christ unless Jesus intentionally goes to make sure that he is there. He's literally going at noon, sitting at the well, thinking, okay, she's about to come now. And sure enough, she comes. So he's waiting for her. You are not saved because of a random happenstance of events that just took place. You are saved because Jesus intentionally came to meet you. And there's nothing you did to make you worthy enough for him to come to you. It's simply because he diverted his path to you to quench your thirst. So no matter how far you've doubted, no, even if you raise your fist in anger against him, you've cursed him out, Jesus will not let you go. 
our laziness and sin, our lack of interest will not stop our God. He is truly the unstoppable God. And so when he desires to quench your thirst, he will. He will go so far that he will even go to the cross to make sure that your thirst is forever quenched. There's seven different sayings that Jesus said on the cross. I mean, the reason why, those seven sayings are so critical to understanding who God is. There's no way he said these things just randomly. He had very little strength. So whatever he said, the economy of words, he really meant it, what he was saying. And one of those statements he said, John 19, 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The only way Jesus could save this woman, the only way Jesus could save us was to thirst himself. The only way to quench our dying thirst was by Jesus to die in his thirst. And that's what he did. So nothing would stop him from saving you. Nothing, never. This is how much God loves you. We must never think that God does not love us. He loves us immeasurably. So I hope you know that. If you do know that, rejoice and be glad that he is so good. If you do not trust Christ, oh, I hope you see that whatever this world offers, it cannot satisfy your thirst but he wants to do that. May that be today. Let's pray together. Lord, we are like this woman in John 4, so ignorant of our lack of water that is filling our soul with instead that which can never satisfy. We are filled with too much of ourselves by being so full of our own righteousness, our own reputation, it just grows so wearisome and tired to do so. And eventually we grow even sick of ourselves, those around us, that we start cutting everyone off. And eventually in our oldest of ages, we're all alone because we're filled with nothing but that which cannot satisfy. Jesus, you promise us living water. We will never grow thirsty, but we have to trust you. For those of us, for all of us, we have something in our lives that we say, do not touch this, Lord. I will not give this up to you. I can't, but Lord, we're, we're filling ourselves with something that ultimately is disgusting. Eventually, we will grow weary and tired and disgusted by it. But you promise us freedom and joy. May we believe that today. I pray over every individual person whom you're speaking to today. Lord, help them to see that you're their only hope. As we take this bread and wine for those of us who are in Christ, may we just give you thanks and praise for it. That on that cross, when you said, I thirst, You did so to quench our thirst because we are the ones who are actually thirsting. But you gave us that living water. In Jesus' name we pray.